You're listening to Modern Marketing, a podcast brought to you by Influicity. At Influicity, we build brand communities that drive revenue. Learn more at Influicity.com. On today's episode, Influicity CEO John David speaks with Leisha Roche, former brand leader for Kraft, Manulife, and McKenzie. Leisha, welcome to the podcast. Hi, John. Nice to see you. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Why don't you go ahead and share your first insight? Okay. My insight is great brands build great companies. Now, you're probably thinking that sounds pretty simple and cliche, but in an age where we're focusing more on performance marketing and proliferation of digital channels, I think we might have shifted the pendulum a little bit too much and forgotten the true power that a brand has in building a company's image, creating loyalty, and ultimately driving that business growth. Sometimes I think we focus more about being on the channel versus being about our brand. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, we lose sight of kind of what that core of our brand is all about. And when you do that, you make decisions in channels that maybe aren't true to what your brand exists for. It's obvious that there's more pressure on driving sales and shrinking budgets. And I think marketers have definitely tended to focus more on performance-based marketing to drive short-term sales or ROI just to show the value to CEOs or, or value to the organization. But, you know, I was reading a LinkedIn study and the fact is, is that 95% of your customer base is not in the market today. So what that means is that you need to focus on memorability and relevance so that they do remember you and consider you when they are ready to buy, because that's becoming more important. So just on the record, I, I do want to say that performance marketing or having a hyper focus on omni-channels to reach audience is for sure important. You know, I've had to flex throughout my career for on both of them, actually purpose-based marketing and performance-based marketing. But I think as a, a brand evangelist or a brand purist, you know, I always believe in the power of a great brand and driving business growth and, and the role that brand fundamentals like brand strategy, brand identity, brand architectures, and most importantly, distinctive brand communications have in doing that. That's so interesting. I, I want to. There's a few things I want to jump on there. But one thing you said was 95% of the market are not in the market for your product. So there's a similar stat that I use, which is that 3% of consumers are actually ready to buy your product. And the other 97%, roughly in thirds, are either searching for a solution, they're problem aware, but they don't know there's a solution, or they're not, not even problem aware. And so it's much more about creating demand and then why am I the solution for you versus, hey, buy my product, buy my product. And when, there, when all this conversation around like performance marketing versus brand marketing, you can say performance marketing, you know, one is better or, or one is not better. But at the end of the day, when you have 3% of the market that's ready to buy or 5% of the market, you have to do something else. And as you said, building your brand is the way to do that. So let, let, let me ask you this then. When you're in a big company, because you've worked for some very big companies, how how much are you battling to say, hey, guys, we need to be spending this money to prepare our business for the next six months or 12 months. It's not going to show up in our bottom line today. 
Yeah, great question. I mean, I've worked in food or consumer packaged goods. And I think in that case, it was, you know, back in the day, there probably wasn't as much pressure on it because there was a realization that marketing in a consumer packaged goods industry really drove the business. It was seen as a, as a growth driver. So, you know, it really wasn't about battling. It was about thinking about how you can get more dollars to drive even more growth for the brands that you're working on. You know, fast forward to financial services, I, I still wouldn't use the word battling because the thing to me that was actually really surprising about financial services, and I was in a B2B focused, you know, capacity, whether it was at Manulife or McKenzie Investments, is it never really seemed like a battle. And maybe that was just because my team and I never approached it that way. We just focused on creating that possibility for the organization. You know, we showed people what great would look like. We showed the organization and CEOs kind of where their brand could go. And because of that, it was really about hitting kind of, you know, small wins. And ultimately, it laddered up to kind of that big, big home run that drove distinction for McKenzie and for Manulife. And do you think maybe these you know, you've had experiences at these big companies, and so there are budgets for that. I've spoken to a lot of sort of startup or venture-backed startup CMOs. You know, maybe their companies raised twenty or thirty million bucks, but they're still very, very focused on the performance. The let's spend a dollar to make three dollars. Is that really just a big company versus small company uh, dynamic, or is it more of where we are in the market when there's just more pressure on on earnings versus stories? <laughs> I mean, I think it's probably the latter. There's always a pressure on just how you're spending your dollar. And so, you know, absolutely, I think like the approach that I've taken in the past is you've got to focus on performance and the short term, you know, sometimes you need to do that. But that doesn't mean that you can't choicefully spend your your budget on upper funnel tactics, you know, in a smaller way, like carve off five to 10%. I mean, there's some interesting things that you can do with influencers today that don't cost a lot of money. So it's really about uncovering those opportunities. You know, an example for us is we worked years ago with Dude Perfect. We didn't have a lot of money when we were launching Neo. And that was a new product to the marketplace. So small budget. So just like a startup within a big powerhouse of, of craft. And, you know, we, we had to have kind of our, our traditional 30-second TV ad at the time, which we did. But then we branched outside of that and started to look at new ways to engage influencers. And we used Dude Perfect, gave them our product and said, have at it from trick shots to trick squirts. And that was it. And that video drove over 7 million hits on, on YouTube. So I think there's, there's different things that you can do to flex performance and purpose-based marketing. So I love that. And that campaign was called Squirt Some with, with Dude yeah. Perfect. Can you talk about... So just for the listeners, for context. So the campaign is called Squirt Some, Dude Perfect. You can check them out on YouTube. A group of guys doing trick shots and pranks and, and you know all kinds of stuff like that. How hard of a sell was that internally? Or was it a hard sell to get this super traditional mega blue chip company craft to work with Dude Perfect on Squirt Sum? Yeah. Well, let me say it was interesting times. It was fun. It was interesting. That's for, that's for sure. So the first thing is, is that Neo did not have any craft branding on it. So I think that that made it a lot easier. The second thing, and I'll kind of go back to what I had said before, is if you show people possibility, 
then they come along with you on the journey. So this was really all about showing the possibility. You know, there was a U.S. campaign that was ready to go. 12 weeks to launch. I had just come into the business um, myself and, you know, the director that was working with me and new agency. And we looked at the ad and we said, oh my gosh, this is not going after male millennials. This is going after moms who was craft's traditional audience. So we parallel pathed this campaign, which was called Sportsum. Obviously, you know, double meaning, but it means something to millennial guys. And I remember, you know, we tested it and it tested significantly better than the U.S. And you'd think at that point, it was like, okay, let's just go. We're, we're ready to go. We're going to launch this thing. But then we, you know, sold it up to the president. And I remember at the time, and he was a great mentor of mine. He said, you know, well, I don't like, I don't like this campaign. I don't, I don't get it. And I said, well, with all due respect, you're not the target, like you're not the audience. And I think the rest is history. And we were able to launch it. And, you know, the silver lining in that was, you know, the U.S. ended up taking the spot. So the CEO of North America gave them the money to do that. But for sure, having conversations with legal about explaining the double meaning, you know, was some fun times. So. A lot of fun conversations, I'm sure. And what was it like? Uh, this is a, another related question on that. You came in, so at Craft, I guess you went in in 2013 and you were there for a couple of years. And that was sort of, I mean, I started Influicity, which was at first just an influencer marketing pure play company around that time. And I remember the early conversations, and Craft was one company that I had conversations with among many others. It was really weird, even just to talk about the world of YouTubers. Like questions I would get would be like, hey, how do these YouTubers get views on their videos? Why is anybody watching this stuff? Like, do people know about YouTube? Like, really rudimentary stuff that we're, we're way beyond that. When this person puts a video out, they're going to get 100,000 views in 20 minutes. That was a very hard concept to explain. Did you get that right away? Like, were you a brand leader that sort of got that? Or do you have to learn what this whole YouTube thing was about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I hate to admit it, but I, I actually started at Craft in 1998. But I came oh, in role. I guess I you're, you're you, sorry, you were GM of the grocery division just, in 2013. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Influicity. Since 2015, we've been building brand communities that drive revenue. First, we did it through influencers. Then we added podcasts. Today, we work with world-class brands to build, optimize, and run breakthrough programs that create and capture demand. It's time to stop renting your influence and start owning it. Learn more at Influicity.com. I, I hate to say how long I was there for, but back to the question. I would say, you know, on the whole dynamic of YouTube and just getting it, I really relied a lot on the agencies that we worked with and the team, you know, that worked with me because, you know, as a leader, you don't always know the best way to go at things. And I remember at the time, I mean, the, the dude perfect idea was our PR agency. At the time, they brought that forward. Our ad agency then started to figure out, okay, how are we going to do distinctive marketing? So I think it was like I was just open to hearing what they had to say. And because of that openness, I always wanted to try new things. I wanted to doubt conventions. I never wanted to settle for just the same old way of doing things. And I think that's what kind of made me more innovative to try new things. Kudos to you because I, I mean I'm sure a lot of people at an organization like that would have been just what are you guys nuts? What we can't we can't do any of this. <laughs> yeah, they. Pro I mean, people probably thought that we were nuts, but we were willing to take that chance. I mean, as long as you have a, as long as you have a plan B, I guess that's you know most important. And I've always had a plan B. You know, if you go in and you just kind of 
try to hit for the hills and uh, you're and you don't have that backup plan, people might not come along with you. So, um, and you spent years obviously moving up the ranks at Kraft, at Manulife, at McKenzie Investments, from a GM to a VP marketing to an SVP marketing. So, a lot of people listening to the podcast that are coming up in their careers. What what advice would you give if you could talk to your your, your younger self? about what what made you so successful and what 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 continues to make you so successful as a senior marketing leader? I mean, that's a, a great question. You know, some one that I haven't really thought about and I would say the biggest thing for me is I was always focused on making impact and never as focused on getting that next promotion. And I think when you do that, you you do the best work possible. So early on in my career, I mean, I started as a financial analyst. I then moved into sales. I then moved into marketing, took an innovation role, took a GM role. So I've had a lot of breadth in my career. And that breadth has kind of given me the perspective as I've moved up just to see things from a different angle, from a different functional angle. But I was never focused on, I need to be in this position you know, or promoted in the next five years. And if I don't get that, then I'm leaving to go somewhere else. It was always just focused on doing great work, making impact and working with people that would make me better. Focus on the work, not on the promotion. Yeah. (laughs) You had another great line. What's more important, brand or business? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, You know, I think it's interesting because when, you know, coming from a consumer packaged goods industry, you see those as mutually inclusive. But when you go to financial services, it's a little different because inherently it's the business overshadows possibly the brand. And so for me, I always think that you need both. You know, you can't have a successful business without having a successful brand and you can't have a successful brand without having a successful business. And and what I mean by that is like, as we know, a business is focused on selling goods and services to make a profit, but having quality, unique products is just table stakes now. It is it is virtually impossible to think of a new idea or a new service that hasn't been creative. And then I think that's where brand is becoming increasingly more important. You have to think about relevance, trust, distinction, and even more so in a world that is highly commoditized, you know, even more than when I grew up. So, you know, branding is becoming more important than ever and having the best of both kind of almost the yin and yang, that's when you unlock kind of greatness. I was watching a talk with Seth Godin and he had a great line. He said, I can stand in the middle of Times Square and I am no more than 20 feet away from six options of yoga pants from <laughs> all the greatest yoga pant retailers. He said, the, sh- the yoga pant shortage is over. And it's so true if you think about it. There, it doesn't matter what you sell, as you said, that the product is table stakes. It's really the the brand that people are buying into. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Do you find that more difficult? So working in in two industries, both large but different. So finance versus grocery CPG, is the approach the same, or are you thinking about it differently if you're selling something in the finance world versus something that people are eating or drinking? Yeah, great question. You know, when I left food back in 2015 and went into financial services, I think that was the most asked question 
of of the year, people would say like, what's the difference? And I mean, there's a lot of differences for sure, but there's a lot of similarities. So, you know, in in the capacities that I was working at, it was you know, going from B to C to B to B, and the needs and insights of both of those customers are are completely different. So when you're in food and you're you're marketing to a consumer, they have a love for food and the products. They've been built into their memory structures. It's simple. It's fun. And then you you move to financial services and you, you know, we were marketing to advisors. Uh, so in a B2B world primarily, you know, it, it is a little different, right? The buy cycle is a little longer. You start to think about kind of what they need. They need more information to make better decisions. You know, not that it's not fun. You know, you can make it fun for sure, but it's a little more complicated. So you've got to think about how are you going to simplify it for the end customer? <laughs> and and so you said it's it's obviously more complicated, but I'm guessing it's also just a longer sales cycle, of, alluding to what we were talking about at the beginning. People are going to buy you know, mac and cheese every week, but they're not going to, you know, pick a new insurance company for their car, every, you know, every, every other day. So you're also thinking, I guess, about longer term cycles there. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's kind of goes back to what we were talking about before on the 95% of, of a brand's customers are usually not in the market. I mean, that couldn't be more closer to the truth in financial services for sure than food. Yeah. In the food world, it just, it just came to my mind now, when you are selling something that's a frequent buy, I guess people really would be in the market. They are in the market for it. But the difference there, and if I'm wrong, tell me, is that they're in the market for the thing they bought last week. So what you're really trying to do is get them to, to kind of switch their, their buying habits, but the frequency is there. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the, you know, when I was back in food, we would always think about it as, as how do you break the routine? How do you break the mental routine of the mom who's making her weekday meals? Because, you know, she gets into a habit of making the same meals every single week because it's her go-to and it's easy to do. So you're absolutely right. It's like, how do you break into that with a new product? Because she's going to the grocery store and just kind of on autopilot picking the same things over and over and over again. So Alicia, if we're talking a year from now, at the end of 2024, what do you think the, the big conversation is going to be or, or, or will have been for, for the previous 12 months? Is it going to be AI? Are we talking meta and Google or, uh, or, or something else entirely? Oh, wow. I, I wish I had that silver ball for sure. I mean, definitely now the talk is AI and and how we're you know thinking differently as marketers to use it. I mean, I've I've used it in in some capacity, and definitely it makes you a lot more effective. I guess maybe I'd think about it as my hope. My hope is really that we're having the conversation on what makes a great brand. You know, celebrating those most successful brands and and you know not losing sight of those brand fundamentals some of the greatest brands in the world, like Nike and Apple and Chipotle, like they are great brands and they're great businesses. And it's not a coincidence that they have both of those things. You know, they're human, they're purpose-led, they're distinctive, and they're part of culture. And I'm just not sure that AI is going to be able to tackle all of those things. So I'm going to go back to kind of what I stay true to is really this kind of brand purist in me. And I, and I hope that there is a bit of a rebirth on that coming into 2024, which I think is a nice compliment to what AI can bring to the table. Alicia Roche, thanks so much for joining today. Great. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to Modern Marketing. This podcast is brought to you by Influicity, empowering marketers to build customer communities that drive revenue. We create massive demand via social, influencer, content, paid media, and of course, podcast. Learn more at Influicity.com.